now a word from our title sponsor, Blue Wave Boats. Blue Wave has been the number one selling bay boat along the Gulf Coast for many years now. And with over 50 square miles of marsh located out of Venice, Louisiana, it is essential that I choose the right boat to put my clients on fish. For the last four to five years, I've been using a 24-foot bay boat powered with a single 300 Suzuki and it's been an amazing boat. However, over the years I've also learned that I like to target a lot of different species that are near shore, so having a bigger boat with more power could help with that. Which is why I've decided to move to a 26 Pier Bay powered with twin 200 Suzukis and this has been the perfect size boat for being able to target multiple different species, especially because the boat has over four live wells in it, which allows me to use multiple different baits to target multiple different species. With the flush mounted seating, I'm also able to maintain ample fishability, all while still providing a comfortable ride for my clients. With the step toll technology, I'm able to be more fuel efficient at higher speeds, which is also a huge advantage when making long runs through the marsh. If you would like to purchase a Blue Wave boat, head on over to bluewaveboats.com where you can find your local dealer. One of my favorite things to eat while out on the water is either beef jerky or snack sticks. And my favorite place to get this is bourgeoismeatmarket.com. That's right, guys. This is some really good stuff. They don't use any nitrates or preservatives. It comes from one of the oldest meat markets in the world with over 130 years in existence and their fourth generation taking over now. I really want to get the word out about their product and how easy it is to go on their website, order what you want, and leave it on your boat. So go to bourgeoismeatmarket.com and use code TUNATOWNTALKS in all capital letters to get 10% off your order. That's right guys, go to bourgeoismeatmarket.com and use code TUNATOWNTALKS in all capital letters to get 10% off your order. That's bourgeoismeatmarket.com. B-O-U-R-G-E-O-I-S meatmarket.com. Alright guys, super excited about this one today. Um, I have Eric Geely on the podcast and um, I am uh, really excited to uh, talk to him. But before we get started, Eric, can you tell everybody your credentials and um, uh, who you work for and everything like that? Yep. My name is Eric Geely. I work for the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources and I am a marine fisheries biologist there. So work to uh, manage and put regulations on the marine fisheries for the state. Wow. Awesome. And um, I originally was uh, uh, introduced to Eric through a good friend, of a mutual friend of ours that also works through the DMR of uh, Jared Mitchell, which he's in the artificial reef program with the DMR. Is that that's accurate? Yep, that's right. He works for artificial reef and works to put out more structure for uh, Mississippi anglers to go fish. Awesome. And um, so they contacted me and um they wanted to put out satellite tags on a uh, triple tail and uh, i was of course super excited about that because anything i can find out more about triple tail um just i have a lot of interest in so um maybe you can go ahead and, and kind of take it from here and tell everybody what we did and what we saw and um even some of the trips that you did without me, I'd like to know about those as well. So Yeah, so I'll give you a little background on uh, the project and how we got here. So the original source was a sport fish restoration grant through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, basically, it is um, funding that's available for research going to learn more and understand more about fisheries that there's a lack of information on. Triple Tail was a very good candidate for that. 
this fund also goes towards a lot of projects for improving boating access, improving access for anglers, um, various different things that will benefit the public directly. And uh, we saw Triple Tail with the rise in popularity uh, being something that it was really going to be something that anglers would get a lot of benefit from. And our research would be very interesting to them just because they love it, but we don't know that much about the species. Um, so in 2019, we did our first year of satellite tagging and it was focused on Mississippi fish, where those fish were going, uh, because Mississippi state agency, we really wanted to focus and understand what's going on with our fisheries. So we put out that first year of tags and we got some indication that a lot of those fish were from the Mississippi sound moving out in the fall, um, seemingly along chandelier and then kind of towards your neck of the woods down in Venice. Mm -hmm. um, once they got around the river, most of the tags popped off um, and it was more of an issue with how we attached it to the fish. So, I mean, you're not talking about huge swordfish, marlin, something that you can put a large tag on mm -hmm. and uh, the fish not feel it. So we had to come right. up with some creative ways. And so can you explain the tag a little bit? Just yeah. So pop-up satellite tag, um, it's probably most known with being put on sharks. Mm -hmm. um, where you insert the tag externally, so something holds onto the fish like a barb or a tether, mm -hmm. and then that tag is just kind of dangling behind the fish. Well, you can set the tag to where it pops off when you want it to pop off. For example, uh, we set those first tags to pop off 180 days after we tagged them. So it would swim around, it would record information throughout that time period, and then at the very end of the 180 days, it automatically release from the fish, go to the surface, and then transmit all the information through that 180 days to the satellite network, which then gets back to us and we can analyze. So it's almost like a mini recorder of what that fish is going through for that 180 day duration. Um, different tags, different features. We've used three different types of tags, so, uh, but they all have some ver ver uh, variety of depth. So all the tags have a ver uh, different variations of parameters that are recorded. Uh, depth is one, temperature, um, various things that we want to know what that fish is experiencing. Um, one of the key ones for some of them is the amount of light that is detected. So when the sun rises and when the sun sets, we can use that along with surface temperature to kind of pinpoint where that fish most likely was at that day at that time. So kind of some cool different models that you can use to track the fish even though you don't have a true GPS on it. Um, and that was what we used in that 2019 iteration. And it was models that showed those fish were definitely going from Mississippi area down past Venice. Mm -hmm. Well, 2021, uh, we had a leap year in 2020. Right. 2021, we were able to get back out and do some deployments with a different type of tag that actually had solar panels really? embedded in the tag. So it powered itself throughout the deployment, didn't have a battery that it needed. So if that fish came to the surface and was just hanging out like triple tail do, it would automatically send a location to the satellite. Hey, I'm right here. And it would be pinpoint down to a couple hundred yards. Wow. So we got some real time tracking of those fish from approximately September one through mid November. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much all in the Mississippi sound, it was amazing for such a lazy fish 
how much movement those fish actually made. We had one fish that in the matter of four weeks traveled 400 miles. Wow. It went in four weeks in four weeks. So it was tagged, uh, basically at round Island in the Mississippi sound Mm -hmm. (laughs) traveled to deer Island, um, out to horn Mm -hmm. all the way over to dolphin Island into mobile Bay and then traveled along each of the Mississippi barrier islands on the way back, popped into Biloxi Bay one more time, pretty much right off of East Beach, then jumped all the way out to the Louisiana Marsh, Wow. down south of, of Chandelier, mm-hmm. out to around FH-13, FH-12, kind of that area, mm-hmm. then back to the Louisiana Marsh, and after that point was the last time that we saw it, and that was... Um, a duration of I think approximately the month of October. And what was the size of that fish? That was at the time my personal best fish. It was a twenty pound fish. Um, okay. Yeah. And that and that's one of the things too. So like whenever you put these tags on, you're actually inserting something through the fish and bolting this tag on, right? So that's, was was that the same way that we did it? So the bolting was the newest method that we did for 2022, and oh, I think okay. it was the best attachment method that we've had. The first iteration, 2019. That fish that you just talked about, was that bolted or not? That was not. That That was was two passes of nylon-coated stainless steel wire material. So, um, surflon. Like through the fish? Exactly. Through the fish, looped back, crimped to where it would almost be kind of a, uh, call it like a saddle. Right. Tethered back to the tag. Okay. Um, And we'll have some visualizations that are available. We got uh, all the links for the information that I'm talking about is available on the DMR website. So we'll be able to tie that in and let people kind of see the visualizations that I'm talking about. Right, right, right. But some really great information out of that year. And um, it was more about the inter-fall duration. So where those fish were going and what they were doing while they were in Mississippi state waters. Mm -hmm. We got some tracking again down towards Venice but we didn't get anything beyond that. Uh, again, it was, I think, tag attachment method that over time in salt water, all those components, they're wearing and tearing and weren't able to hold on. Right. So for our year where we actually got to go out with you <laughs> and do some uh, serious tagging down in Venice, we were wanting to upgrade and get uh, the best attachment method that was not going to degrade. So we went with a nylon bolt that was passed through the fish looked pretty awful when we were putting it in but i think for the fish's um, health and for the fish's duration it was the best tagging method that we used Um, and so then that was tethered back to the tag right and so um whenever you guys came fishing with me that first time do you remember how many fish were tagged oh gosh i want to say that we caught total in the range of 30 something and well that was the second time the first time i think it was like 19 wasn't it wasn't it like 19 and we tagged tagged maybe six 15 or 16 of them yeah i think that's what it was yeah no it was pretty awesome i think we had uh i think i remember it was like we had three or four over 20 pounds yeah um three over 22 pounds in the first 15 minutes yeah some big ones y'all y'all hit it right for yeah. sure it was really good and managed to cap it off with the 20 pounder yeah yeah it was really really good and um so we tagged all these fish and um it was it was really cool to see how how to put the tags on and everything for me because like i mean that was something totally new and um 
and then you guys came back again and we caught i think it was like 32 or 33 fish that's right so on that trip we were um assisting the gulf states marine fisheries commission with their project which they are tagging triple tail with acoustic tags so those ones actually go inside you hear a lot about them um, with various different species they've been done on cobia redfish uh, flounder but uh, he's doing those on triple tail to try and also gain a better understanding of what those fish are doing in the gulf of mexico right and then beyond that because we caught man we caught 33 i think we had like another five or six that were around 20 pounds i mean it was unbelievable that's right i mean some of the best i mean you got some of the best days and i don't know if it was because we just we were you know we were trying to catch as many as possible i think a lot of times you know if i catch two a person i kind of just move on and do something else or or we go in you know like we don't really sure you don't see how many i don't just yeah i don't see how many i can you know because i mean there is a lot like we i mean you catch that many there's we probably killed you know five or six each time sure in the process of it because i mean you gut hook them or the fish don't really i mean there's a mortality rate to fishing absolutely even if you're releasing them and uh i think that's probably why i don't just catch and you know keep catching and releasing stuff right after a certain point once you've caught that 25 pounder trophy fish then it's like okay time to move on (laughs) but um yeah we caught i mean it was unbelievable just to see the the amount of fish there and off of very few structures too very very few (laughs) i don't remember moving a whole lot i just remember a whole lot of fishing and it was non-stop yeah the entire time it was really really good but um you also went over to various parts of florida to do the same thing right that's right so in this year we um really tried to expand it to other areas so we obviously we came down with you in venice and got a bunch of tags out there i think we ended up putting out a total of 30 in louisiana waters um we had five fish that we tagged in mississippi state waters this year mm-hmm. and we were able to get 10 fish in florida state waters so five of those were around Apalachicola. Um, went out with uh, saltwater obsessions over there great guide knows his triple tail and what's the captain's name so we had jordan todd out of Apalachicola and um bean storen uh brandon storen out of the florida keys um that was out of, out of Murata, bud and mary's marina and they were both incredible fishermen for triple tail they knew their area to the t um over in Apalachicola with jordan we were able to get five very large fish tagged um when so, you say very large how big so for florida uh very large they were 15 to about 23 pounds okay. they were substantial fish for over Those there good fish yeah. yes absolutely um down in the keys big fish are a little bit harder to come by so we were able to get some uh approximately 20 to 22 inch fish tagged and we got five there also um we saw that the fish in the keys which were tagged in march that or sorry were tagged in january through march and may stayed in the immediate area they really didn't go anywhere um mm-hmm. seemingly they've got everything they need there and the water temperature everything about it they were kind of in their summer pattern already they um, were just yeah they were hanging out exactly they had the crab trap pots that they could hang out on um they had plenty of bait right water temperatures no real reason to leave um, now up in Apalachicola, those fish were i would say very much associated with the type of environment that our 
fish in Venice and the Mississippi Sound associate with, where they want a freshwater outflow. Um, and so those fish were also uh, caught in the same kind of areas and um, very, very cool fishery there also. So got right. in Indian Pass there, um, definitely one of the uh, larger triple tail fisheries in Florida. Right, and and then they did they um, did they, you, I th- I think I remember you talking to me on the phone, and you said that they they were actually some of those fish died. Is that right? Or? Yeah. So um, we got all those fish tagged in the fall in Apalachicola, and we did not see a mort uh, mortality rate like we did there anywhere else. So uh, f- those fish we saw a hundred percent mortality within four weeks, which to us is extremely high um now none of them were earlier than three weeks so like it was definitely Mm -hmm. a three four week window and where did you find that those fish went in those three weeks they were all local they did not travel right um and so you're talking about the period of october uh really that's the month of october Mm -hmm. he normally sees those fish moving off kind of at the end of october into november into november um but now there is one caveat there. Once that tag goes out, I am only looking at the data to try to figure out what happened to that fish. So if that fish died, it could look a lot like if an angler caught it, clipped off the tag, and threw it in the water. So we don't know 100% that that was all mortality. our fishing mortality or tag mortality or if it was just somebody wanted to harvest that fish which is well within their rights it's just normally we would request that uh an angler get the tag back to us find a way to contact us with the information that's on the tag so we can put that tag back into use on another fish yeah Uh, we had an instance of that down in venice yeah Uh, exactly i was just about to say a a good friend of mine uh brandon ballet um he was out fishing with actually a, a common client i'd actually taken the guy fishing before and uh they brought it in and he didn't know what it was, you know, because they look kind of funny, you know, something bolted on the fish, you know, and, um, he brought it in and he was like, Paul, who was this? And I was like, Oh, you got one. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, we, we did that. <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, I got the tag and of course brought it back to you and, um, hopefully maybe the tag will be put out, put out again. But that was, you know, back in, um, that was probably, like three weeks after or maybe a week after it wasn't long um i think i looked back it was almost exactly one month after that fish had been deployed and it had moved um less than an eighth of a mile (laughs) it was right in the same spot it it did not go anywhere (laughs) yeah and and so um with all the the fish that we tagged in in louisiana i know we talked a little bit about that but off kind of off the podcast um can you tell us where these fish, uh, the amount, I guess the amount that we tagged and how many died and how many, you know, just everything, where right. they went, the whole thing. So we were able to put out a total of 30 tags in Venice on the two trips that we went with you. Um, in addition to the five tags out of Mississippi, so total of 35, we have about 10 tags that were able to satellite transmit a lot of information to us that we were able to understand that that tag was on the fish for a large duration of time and we could understand where it went what kind of behavior it was having during that time and it covered into the winter time frame which is really the goal of this project is to figure out what are these fish doing in the winter the other fish had variations of data transmission so 
um, there's some cases where the tag will struggle to actually transmit all the information. That could be that the antenna is just not quite out of the water enough because it has marine growth on it. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that's normal in satellite tags, and it's really hard to do anything more than put biofouling on the tag. Other fish, it is very possible that there was mortality. Uh, I think that I was only able to identify three or four fish that we tagged in Venice that was confirmed this was a mortality where the fish did not survive and it was likely fishing mortality or asso directly associated with the tag. Mm -hmm. uh, in those cases, I could see that uh, the fish was swimming around for a week and then temperature spiked because it was hanging out at the surface, probably floating, and then washed up on a beach somewhere and can see that happen also in the tag data. That's the kind of a key indication that that fish was um, dead within approximately one to two weeks, and it was more likely because of what we did. Right, yeah. right. And I mean, there were some fish where we pulled a hook that seemed like that fish was going to survive, seemed like it was healthy and good condition, good color, not bleeding. Never know if that hook just hit something just wrong. Yeah, or it could be that you did gut hook him and then it pulled out into his lip, you know, and you thought you had him good. But, absolutely you know what i mean things like that happen absolutely and there's no telling really what, what it was but. yep um but anyway so we were able to get some great information out of about 10 of those fish and the most consistent thing that we saw was both mississippi and venice louisiana fish transitioning to the southwest for the mississippi fish along venice and then really staying oriented to the coastline along louisiana so we saw a lot of fish that were hanging along Cameron, Louisiana, uh, call it in the December, early January months, transitioning down further south into Texas in January, February, few fish that actually made it offshore of Mexico. How many fish made it to Mexico? We had two fish make it all the way to Mexico that were confirmed um, for where that tag popped off. It actually popped off while they were at Mexico. Really, um, and the the tags only have what six months? You said so. These ones were different. These ones were kind of cool, where I could program exactly how many days after we released it that I wanted it to pop off, or I could just pick a day. So we did a staggered deployment where they started popping off December fifteenth, January first, January fifteenth, February first, on down through to March, and so we got a good spread of where those fish were at each one of those points in time. Mm -hmm. So we saw in December that those fish were off Louisiana. We saw in January that they were off of Texas and even in February that they were down South Texas and Mexico. Um, coincidentally, uh, not our project directly, um, but also funded through the same source. The Gulf Coast Research Lab does uh, conventional tagging of triple tail. All those yellow tags you see swimming around on triple tail. Mm -hmm. They had a recapture within about 50 miles in Mexico of where one of our tags popped off. One of their fish was recaptured, and it was within a week of each other. So basically, we have confirmed that there was two fish, both from Mississippi, within 50 miles of each other down in Mexico. Yeah. Isn't there a river down there? So there's a series of major rivers in Mexico. Um there's one specifically that I think uh, these ones were oriented to um, that was, I think, the closest major city is like Tampico. Mm -hmm. um, 
whether or not it was uh, specifically in that estuary or not can't be certain whether it was an, an off flow where there's a rip line that could associate with that fresh water source but we definitely think that there's a strong association for this species with fresh water sources in uh, the florida keys was there a fresh water source everglades it everglades is right yes there. absolutely um there was plenty of fresh water to be had there okay yeah interesting yep wow that's super cool and I, that's something that i've i've kind of found for for certain it seems to me like they like to be um close to deep water but also close to fresh water yes uh, i think that's a great uh analysis just because every single major fishery that we see talk about mobile uh some of the areas in florida that are very very good for triple tail they have the fresh water source they have the food source they have access to deep water and deep obviously not quite as much as venice that's about <laughs> yeah. as deep as you get as fast as you get but um with mobile uh you have a very deep channel that they can recede into um, mississippi sound is generally pretty shallow but we see the highest associations of triple tail associated with channels um venice obviously you have deep water access readily available and a um, lot of river flow from various different points all around the river for absolutely sure. yeah. and so one thing that isn't really known for the species is spawning grounds we know we're fairly certain that it's not offshore when we think about offshore somebody's fishing for mahi they might see a school of 100 triple tail but mm -hmm. you'll be lucky to see illegal fish out there right the sargassum and rip lines and everything that occurs offshore is great nursery habitat for the species um, but we don't see the adults orienting with that and that transition of the adults in the winter along the coastline was just another really good point towards um, that fish being more coastally oriented and using the offshore areas as a nursery um, for the young so we don't think that the fish are spawning offshore. Where are they spawning? The spawning condition of the fish is really indica indicative. So we know that the peak season is June through September for the species. Mm -hmm. For some areas, it can extend before and after that. Right. Um, I think we've seen some fish recently from Venice that were spawning very early. Right. Um, so they have to be spawning generally, if you think about Mississippi Sound, at the barrier islands and within is our general concept we don't think they're associating with reefs we don't think that they're associating with just the the passes themselves they think that it's very structure oriented the fish is very structure oriented they want to be on structure absolutely it's habitat it's food it's uh, potentially a spawning aggregation yeah um, something they can sink up on so we've noticed that there are periods of time where the species you'll pull up to a pole there will be six to 12 fish on that pole. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there will be one large fish, female, and m probably three to four smaller ones that are hanging pretty tight to it. That is a very um, common thing with fish for a spawning aggregation where you'll have four males with very limited um, sperm releases and one female with very large egg releases. And so it's really counting on multiple males to fertilize all the eggs that are released by one large female um, we think that it's synced up with freshwater outflow because freshwater outflow guarantees that the eggs will be dispersed 
offshore, um, most likely with larger tidal events. So if there's a period where it's a really strong outflowing tide, that seems like a time where those fish will sink up to spawn then and really get the offshore dispersal. Uh, but no matter when they spawn, if they're at a fresh water source, it's going to get carried out. Those eggs aren't going to get carried in. Oh, so you're saying that the fresh water will push the eggs out and to like these sargasm lines and rip lines and stuff, Absolutely. they'll hatch and then those fish will use those sargasm as a nursery. Absolutely. And then eventually as they get bigger, they'll move back into these fresh water sources, hunker up on structure begin to start repeat the cycle repeat the cycle again that's our working theory um we've tried to it makes complete sense to me honestly (laughs) (laughs) well that's good uh gives me a little vote of confidence um but no we really uh, kind of put a lot of thought into this because at the same time the fish is at its most vulnerable when it's aggregating and when it's near shore when it's readily accessible to anglers and when there's the most anglers on the water in the summer yeah. So uh, it's definitely something important to think about with regulations. Um, one of the coolest things about this fish is how fast it grows. Um, and so you can have state record fish that are four to six years old. It's That's incredible. That's um, unbelievable. Yeah, I got a, a one that was he was 35 pounds on the dot. He was 37 on the bogus. Just caught a few days ago. And I got the head for you, so I can't wait to hear what the, what the age is on that fish i'm looking forward to finding out that's that's going to be super cool because i mean that and that was that was a giant fish and i mean you know one thing to just kind of touch on that you were just talking about um as far as you know within the big it seems to me like whenever you have these uh around the full moons whenever you have these big tide cycles that's when these fish start to get real comfortable they it seems like they bunch up in the areas and they um they get really i don't i don't know you know like people like to say we know that they spawn from this time to this time i i think the mississippi river in itself is a whole different beast whenever you know whenever that river gets really really low like historically low right now like it is these fish can move there and get you know get happy where they want to be and and eat and whenever these big tidal movements come through it yeah just like you're saying that kind of makes sense as to why they'd want to spawn right then is because they need that tide to move all their eggs out and um as far as when they spawn i don't think that there's a season to it personally i think it's just when everything everything's right i think they they kind of feel what's happening and they they just do when they do and i think that other species like sheephead or or speckled trout are probably a little bit more easily predictable about when they're going to spawn and stuff but as far as triple tail go I mean, it's a pelagic fish, and they've been evolving for a long time. <laughs> Man, so it's it's entirely possible. So we don't have the samples that we could get from when they are South Texas, Mexico offshore. It's at that time there's not a lot of anglers that are fishing for them, and you would have to be pretty directed to get them. Mm-hmm. They're associating with temperature pushes, so they're trying to keep themselves at an appropriate temperature. Um, generally, we saw that at about 67 degrees. Fahrenheit and up um, was kind of the minimum threshold that they want to be. There could very easily be spawning down in Mexico too. They may they may not stop. Um, it may not occur quite as frequently that they may be looking for that fresh water source once they pick up that signature. Okay, now I can do another spawn. 
um, that kind of thing. And it would make sense for these coastally pelagic fish to be cruising the shoreline and then pick up on a freshwater signature, come in, spawn, and then keep on moving down until they pick up another freshwater signature um, and use that to orient to. I mean, one thing that you got to think about what these fish were doing before there was channel markers, before there was platforms. Um, yeah, what were they doing then? Man, there's a lot of trees that washed out of the rivers. Um, <laughs> yeah. And those trees, they weren't navigational hazards back in the uh, 1400s. So at that point in time, you would just have a ton of large vertical structure stuck in the mud stuck or just laid on the bottom that could absolutely be a uh, a structure to orient to for that spawning activity right yeah and do you think that the the idea of having more structure would lead to more production so that is a widely divided question (laughs) yes um so I do think that increasing the amount of structure can lead to a more productive fishery. Um, What it really comes down to is, is the structure that you're putting out important for a critical life stage that it, without it, it would not be able to support the biomass. So if you put out a bunch of structure and it is critical to larval or juvenile, um, growth that they hang on that structure and it is important for them to be able to make it to spawning size that would be important to growing the biomass and to building the amount of fish that you can have out there if the structure can not be oversaturated with fish putting out more structure is just going to spread the amount of fish that you have existingly so you're basically saying okay these juvenile fish if we do not add more structure, half of them will die. But if you add this amount of structure, three quarters of them will survive and only 25% will die. Well, that's actually increasing the biomass versus you have a set number of adults. Those adults are going to orient to some kind of structure and having more of it just spreads them out. It just spread them out. Yeah. So it's maybe it's more of having structure in these key areas. Absolutely. So that would be something where if you have the more structure in the areas that are important for spawning, it could result in greater area for the spawning to occur and build the biomass that way. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of one of my theories as to, um, my dad was recently on my podcast and he's done a lot of artificial reef work. And he thinks that we should have sanctuary areas um, where we can't fish at all. Sure. And I, I almost, you know, at, at first I, I've always hated the idea of having sanctuary areas, but it, to me, it seems like it would allow, like if you had certain areas, you would want areas that you can fish and then have sanctuary areas where they can spawn and not be tampered with. Sure. So that we, and also I would say that, without all the structure off the coast of Louisiana or or in these key areas that we're talking about, you know, these fish are spawning there, but it's also sending fish back to Mississippi where there's a lot less structure or Florida where there is, or or Texas and and, and Mexico. Absolutely. I mean, there's incredible transport associated with larval fish. There's a lot of movement associated with adult fish. Um, As far as sanctuary areas go, um, when you go down and dive on a sanctuary area, it is incredible. It, it is, is. It is beautiful. Um, and it is a great resource from that perspective. 
be more impactful over the scheme of a Gulf-wide fishery is through appropriate management of the fishery to not rely on a sanctuaried area for improved fisheries management. However, there is an incredible value associated with a sanctuaried area being somewhere that is a recreationally important area. Um, just for the diving, for uh, being able to go down and see 20 different species. Yeah. I personally experienced it. Um, I was kind of blown away. I went to uh, Belize on my honeymoon. Oh. And there's a place called Holchan Reef. Have you been there? I have been to Belize. Um, that was not the spot that we went to. Uh, but they have several, right? Yes. In sanctuary yes. areas. But I, I was talking to a guy, one of the boats I'd gone out with in one day, and uh, I said, man, where would be like an awesome snorkel spot for you know us to go? And he said, man, just go over to Whole Chain Reef. It's unbelievable. I'm like, you're talking about that spot with like two or 300 people in the water and snorkeling around? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm telling you, it's awesome. And uh, there's no there's no fences, gates keeping these fish in there. But I mean, went on a scuba dive and I saw African pompanos. I saw big dog snappers. I saw groupers. I saw I mean, like anything that you could imagine. And then you go on the other side of the reef where there's fishermen and spear fishermen and everything else that these and it's it's not nearly the same, you know. And I don't know how long it takes for a sanctuary area to really feel the that impact. And Another thing off the coast of Louisiana that's different is our biomass moves so much. It moves like, you know, that, and that's one of the, it makes it really difficult to fish, but it also, it's also really cool. You know, when you're in the right spot, you're really in the right spot, but when you're in the wrong spot, you're in fresh water and there's nothing, you know, there's just nothing there. (laughs) Absolutely. No. And it's, it's, I don't know. It it definitely opened my eyes to see what sanctuary areas could, could be like. And it was, uh, really opening to me. Sure. Now, and, um, Mississippi's artificial reef areas and uh, I guess lesser so to the, the natural bottom way offshore. Um, but the artificial reef areas, they are dominated by snapper. And if there was not fishing on those artificial reef, nearshore artificial reefs, you would probably still see that they're going to be dominated by red snapper, that you're not going to get the influx of the other species. And that's more about the habitat than it is um, the fishing activity that's going on there. Uh, if anything, in order to get the mangroves, to get the trigger fish, to be able to support lane snapper in those areas, the removals of the red snapper have to be in a way that you're going to be able to get some of the influx and support for those other species. Right. And do, would you say that some of, you know, like a, a lot of our artificial reefs off of Mississippi, I think there's such a huge concentration of red snapper because the art, those structures don't stick all the way out of the water. And so it's less, it's less, um, inhabitable for your pelagics, like triple tail, like king mackerels and sure, all sure. these other type of species that we could name, um, cobias, things like that. And so you do see a lot more red snapper because that's, that's what they're really made for. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, having the vertical structures like you have in Louisiana, it does present so many more fishing opportunities that, uh, their species they key in on that type of habitat they need that type of habitat um, whether it's for the food support or the um, type of activity that they're actually doing it's there's a lot of species who will inhabit a rig in a certain spot and then right next to it, an artificial reef that's made out of anything concrete 
will not have the same type of fish activity just because it's not what they are uh, yeah, what attentive to. Yeah, that's not what they're they're into for sure. It just makes me wonder how, how many fish there would be if we had no structure. I don't think there's anybody that could really, you know, <laughs> put a number on that. No, but, that is a tough question. Like, um, where do you catch a sheephead if there's no structure? Right, they are a structure fish i mean that is like it's it's a but it you know it's a it's a widely debated topic do you have more production or do you do you have just more attraction and i would think that more attraction would lead to more production it would absolutely lead to more production whether it leads to more biomass is more of the question of it could or is an actual bias yeah you just explained but yeah Yeah. (laughs) but no i mean like what she said there's there's no bridges to fish it's uh definitely a more difficult fishery to target um they stack up on structure but they also cruise in the marsh um so would they just be more likely to inhabit those areas seeking crabs or would they be trying to pick them off of bridges i mean it's interesting man because i mean there's not a single fish that i know of um that doesn't associate with structure absolutely when you talk about elephant tuna wahoos um one of the things that gets me is why why don't we swordfish at rigs? You know, <laughs> we I don't think that people have really tried that. That's you know, interesting. Uh, I've I known a, I've known a couple people that have um, dropped and caught swordfish at rigs, sure. but it's not like a you know if you go tuna fishing, you're going to a rig. If you're going off the coast of Louisiana, you'll see open water fish from time to time. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, blue marlin that's all these guys that are winning these tournaments they're fishing right next to structure sure you know, it's, it's no it makes sense i mean the bait are at their most comfortable around structure because it gives them something to hide in yeah it's that so, top third of that water column they need that absolutely absolutely <laughs> so any predator fish that wants to have a good meal is going to be trying to hang out near the structure uh it's going to be a more concentrated availability mm-hmm. so i mean and then um in your opinion um what do you think we need to do as far as regulations go on triple tail? So every state has slightly different regulations. Um, Louisiana, five fish, most other states, three fish, and somewhere in the range of 16 to 18 inches for the minimum length. Those regulations were primarily made off of a good general concept of what was available for information. Um, We are learning more now than we have ever had. Uh, and so it's difficult to say exactly what this fishery needs. Uh, we don't get a ton of landing state on the fishery. It's very targeted. Um, but I do think that there is a possibility of coming up with a way to protect the most vulnerable periods of time for the species in a way that anglers can still get the benefit. So, um, the largest impact is going to come from the fish that are in the range of 20 to 25 inches. They're the most plentiful as far as biomass goes. You don't see nearly as many fish over 25 inches. Right. They are also higher fecundity, so there's more eggs per fish at that stage than there are in the 16 to 20 inch fish. Mm-hmm. So that size fish can be very, very impactful. Whether or not we need it right now is different. Um, the issue I see is that it is possible for an angler or a set of anglers to key in on when these fish are aggregating 
and then clear out a localized area. Very, very difficult for someone to do in South Louisiana. There's so much structure. There are so many fish. There's it, so many areas they could be. Absolutely. In some of the other areas, even Mississippi to some degree, Mobile, those fish can be cleared out of an area through fishing activity. Um, and so it's something to think about as far as localized depletion goes. Um, whether or not that's enough impact to the Gulf-wide stock, because it does seem to be at least an east-west Gulf-wide stock, um, that's a bigger question and a difficult one to answer. Um, but it is something to keep in mind for anglers to consider the local stock that they're uh, potentially out fishing. Right. And would you say, you know, even if they you had more structure um, and they spread out more, that would lead to less harvest? Sure. Um, right. Potentially. It, it would potentially lead to less harvest over the year, but you would still have the critical time frame where those fish are sinking up to spawn that they are at their most vulnerable when there's eight fish on a pole somebody could come in with three anglers and clear out that pole yeah um and there's a lot of folks fishing them these days and they're not all seems to be getting more and more popular absolutely absolutely um i mean you get on social media it, it is a uh absolute loved fishery because of how you're fishing it it's a it's an incredible way to fish whether you're sight fishing them or you're fishing them for some of those 25 30 pounders in different ways it's a very very cool fishery that is not like really anything else that we have available yeah i'd say the same thing i mean i've i've definitely developed a a love for the species and you know one of the things that um is also hard hard at times as a as a guide and as an angler as do, do we want more people fishing for triple tail you know do we want more um a big part of me would say i like to believe yes i would like to believe that if we got more people that love it and more people that are willing to protect it that we can make more habitat for these fish and then the prolification and we make sanctuaries and stuff and so then the prolification if we have enough people that are on board with this that we can have more triple tail you know um and figure out the the best way to harvest these fish whether that's raising the size limit that's me personally i think raising the size limit and maybe louisiana's got a five fish a person i think that's maybe a little excessive um the thing i don't like about fishing regulations a lot of times is if you just keep restricting 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 and eventually we're going to be going out there to catch one fish um the love for the fish is going to go away sure and so that that's what I get worried about. And I've talked to duck hunters that that have seen that happen. They keep going on this down on the the limit of ducks that people can keep, and nobody wants to go anymore. So the love of the fishery goes away, and then the the effort to make more habitat for these fish will not be there anymore. And um, so I I try to stay on the side that we need to make it a more popular fishery. I mean, we need more people that love it. And as much as I don't like that guy that just showed up to that spot right before I did. Um, we still need him. We sure. need, you know, we need that. And what are your thoughts on what I just said? So as far as raising the limit, uh, the length limit goes, it is definitely a benefit to any fishery to get more fish to be able to spawn at least once. Mm-hmm. Having as, uh, so, and that's a way a lot of uh, species are managed is to make sure that every uh, 
every individual is capable of spawning at least once before it is subject to removal. Now it's possible you could have discard mortality, but as far as somebody keeping that fish. So for triple tail, obviously we don't have a full assessment available to us to tell us what the impact of moving it one inch, one inch, one inch would be. But any increase is going to result in more fish being able to spawn at least once. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, the fish grows at about an inch a month for the first year uh, and then slows down slightly. Every fish can be a little bit different, but you would expect that an 18 inch fish is approximately two years old. Um, that fish is able to spawn at that point in time, but if we're harvesting 18 and a half inch fish, those fish may not have had a chance to spawn yet. Um, so raising it would potentially give us more fish that are capable of spawning in every given year. That would be a positive impact on the fishery. It's just a matter of how much impact it would actually end up having. Yeah, and then I kind of went on to, should we make this a more popular fishery as a whole, or should we try to shy away from that? No, I think in general, making a fishery more accessible to anglers is always going to result in benefit. Um, The more anglers that you have invested into something, the more you have available to get information. We can understand more about the species by catching more of the species. Um, There has to be limitations. We can't overfish the stock. If we start seeing decline, we have to act as fast as we see a decline. Um, But at the same time, we have to let our regulations have time to make a difference so that we can understand the impact that we actually had on the stock so we can better adjust. Adjust and... Um, but in and general, that's the thing is, is like in doing this and ever since I've met you, I'm like, all right, we're learning more about the species. We're learning a lot. We know where these fish are. Um, we're knowing, we're knowing where they're moving, but what are we going to do? Right. That's, so, and that, and that, and, and, and the conversation quickly goes to regulations, but I, 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 I you know, and this is such a widely debated thing, but I, I really believe that more habitat and, you know, knowing knowing the 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 rate in which these fish grow is really important too. I think, and um, knowing that they really need to be around these freshwater areas and maybe making them sanctuary. These are all things that we can do. Absolutely, you know, just learning stuff about these and then further regulating them. I don't see that helping, but I think that actually doing something. It is whether it works or not it's what we got to do <laughs> right we know more about the species now than we ever have mm-hmm. and we are more capable of making a good decision about how they should be managed now um, when they made the regulations state by state there's no current federal regulations when they made the state by state regulations um, I think they were working on the best information available Louisiana has a better chance of supporting five fish per person than any other state does. Yeah. The fishery that's available there is different. Um, I mean, we didn't touch on it when we were talking about the data, but there are fish that stay offshore Louisiana within call it 30 miles to 90 miles of the river and they stay there year round. So they might jump out a little bit when it gets cold and go down they might come back in as soon as it warms up, but they're not making a mass migration. And I don't think you really see that anywhere else other than in Venice. Um, and so every fishery is going to be a little bit different. So it's difficult to put a blanket coverage of the size limit should be 20 inches or any given size limit. 
Um, but knowing what we know about the spawning aggregations, I think we can come up with something that's going to be better suited for um, each state to protect the type of fishery that they have. Right, right. And I will say, just because we didn't really talk about that, I've caught a triple tail off the coast of Louisiana every month of the year. And that's, I mean, to me, that that is very uh, similar to what you've just said, that they do stay there. And um, a lot of a lot of fishermen in Louisiana would, would agree that they don't leave, or some of them don't leave. Right. And um, that's, in, a, in, a, in Kobe are the same way. Kobe are very similar to triple tail, in my opinion. Kobe, triple tail, and mahi seem to be very similar. Um, mahi don't seem to hang out on structure quite as much, but you still catch them on rigs, especially offshore. I mean, sure, they, they definitely do. But it seems like they, you know, the the off of Main Pass, uh, off the east side of of, of the river, those cobias can get down into that deep water where the the temperature doesn't change, the baits there year round. Especially why leave? Coke. Yeah, why leave? You know, it's, it's it's cool, and I think that you know a lot of if you look at the span of time and where these fish did most of their uh, evolving from, uh, especially redfish. Redfish are only found in North America. You know, they're not found in anywhere else in the world. Where where did these fish start, and where did they get, uh, first start their evolution? And I would say right around the mouth of the river. You know, the Mississippi River basin stretches from Montana to Pennsylvania. So all that water coming down here for who knows how long, gazillions of years, um, you know, that's that's where all these fish, this is their home. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah. I mean, this, spe- this species is found worldwide. It right. is in every triple ocean. Tail. Right. Yes, it is. Yes, triple tail. Incredible the worldwide spread that this fish has. Yeah. Um, and it's utilizing the same kind of habitat, the same kind of features in every single location that it's at. Right. Um, You're saying that they've found big concentrations near like the Amazon River, right? Right. So the same way that they seem to stack up with associated with the Mississippi River, the Amazon River has an incredible fishery for triple tail. Really? And there's I'm a lot of see other... that actually. Now, ever since you told me that, I'm like, hmm, yeah. I might be going down to the Amazon. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, for, as far as commercial fisheries for the species go that is one of the few areas where there is a sustained commercial fishery for the species. Really? Yes. Commercially, they fish them there? They wow. Do. That's really cool. And I wonder, do they have much structure? Um, in general, I don't know that they would have a whole lot more than, say, um, off a mobile, something like really? that. something like that. Um, yeah. But I think for them, it's the amount of fresh water, it's the amount of coverage um, that it's able to sustain so much biomass that it's the right environment, it's the right habitat, and so they're just able to capitalize on it. Right, right. Damn, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's incredible to think that what we're seeing here uh, could be, be transitioned to yeah. everywhere across the world. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And, you know, I've always said that with uh, ever since I've been guiding off of Louisiana that um, – that place could be really used as like a, a a building block for conservation, you know, across the United States, just because you can see the changes so quick. You know what I mean? You can see what works and it, it always say like, you know, off of Florida, if they would were to start building giant condominiums off the coast of Florida, instead of building them right there on the beach, I mean, go walk out on Pensacola pier and see how much fish is coming off of, 
the you know off of that dock is unbelievable and the yeah, amount of that holds is unbelievable um so what kind of a game changer would that be <laughs> right putting getting the structure out there it definitely creates opportunity for anglers yeah. um without a doubt what else is there anything else that you would want to uh say about the the fish i mean i know there's there's definitely got to be some <laughs> so we've got all this information right and you've touched on it what's the goal of it what, what are we trying to do with it we've got several sources of information that we want to collaborate with so the gulf coast research lab has an extensive history with conventional tagging of the species we want to partner with them pair that information with the information that's being gained from the gulf states marine fisheries commission see vandercourt um, with their acoustic tagging of the species we've got the work that we've been doing with satellite tags and we've got several other sources and uh, hopefully all five state partners to collaborate for improved knowledge on the uh, biology of the species. So being able to get some biological sampling like I'm going to do with the fish that you brought me today uh, for figuring out what the age is, figuring out what the spawning condition of the fish, the fish you, that you brought in was spawning capable and likely active. Mm-hmm. Um, getting that throughout the year for all different sizes of fish leads us to be able to get the best understanding for how that species can be managed. And so pooling all this information into one peer-reviewed literature that can really be an update to the species profile that the Gulf States Marine Fisheries Commission developed, uh, I think it was in 2017. Uh, Very, very interesting. It was basically everything that we know about the species. This is essentially going to turn into an update of that and inform on everything that we know about this species and allow the states to be able to manage them to the best of their abilities. Wow, awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing that. (laughs) I am excited about getting to work on it. Um, It's in the coming stages. We want to not only partner with the state agencies and the university members who have been impactful to gaining that data, but also get real information, real world information from guides such as yourself. Um, made several connections with various guides throughout the Gulf of Mexico, and we think that their information, anecdotally, the what they're observing on the water, y'all see the trends, y'all see the adjustments to the fisheries better than anybody else, and you see when they're stacking up and what that's associated with because guys like myself i took my three-year-old out this past (laughs) weekend but that was the first time i got to fish triple tail this year i don't know how many times you've been this year but it's been a whole lot more than that (laughs) it's been a lot (laughs) um and so you're able to observe a lot of that information and uh have that but we want to be able to come up with a way to get y'all's impact and get y'all's input into what we're seeing from some of the data side of things and it's it's really amazing what you can see, um, not just from fishing but from diving. I've I've been in the water and seen rigs that have had thirty or forty triple tail out of like all big, you know, fifteen plus pound fish at one rig. And to see that, it just whenever you see a big school of them like that, it's like man, how many are out here? You know how like everybody wants to say that you know, I hear people tell me. People, somebody was telling me yesterday that, you know, y'all are going to ruin the triple tail fishery. Yeah, you're going to ruin it. And 
that been fishing down here 50 years. I've never seen so many people fishing for triple tail. And I'm like, yeah, well, people have been telling me that for five, six years now. And the fish that I'm catching now aren't those, you know, they're bigger. You know, it's not, these fish live to be seven years old. So it's not like I'm catching the, you know, these these fish that I'm killing, it's not like they're the, these 50 year old fish that once you take them, they're gone. Absolutely. You know, it's not, there's more to the puzzle than that. And the, one other thing I wanted to touch on because, uh, commonly asked about, and, uh, it kind of, uh, irritates me when other guys say that we should put a slot on triple tail. And it makes sense to me with other species with, uh, with redfish. Um, that you know the the redfish for my listeners that don't know this a redfish doesn't reach sexually maturity until it's 30 inches long and then after that that is a a spawning fish and um that fish can live to be 30 or 40 years old and so they live for very very long times and that that makes sense to me we should take less bull reds than we take of the smaller redfish absolutely um but triple tail is a different thing um and i would say that it would be more closely related to how you harvest deer um, deer, you want a six to seven year old buck is what I don't know much about hunting, but I do know that you want to take out a buck at towards the end of its life so that, that, fit, that, that, you know, is fully mature. And with triple tail, I would say that that would be pretty closely in line with a six to seven year old triple tail. If you catch one that's 30 to 40 pounds, um, that we get at time, you have shots at, at, in Louisiana at, um, if you get one that size, I mean, that, that fish is only going to live another year and that fish should be harvested in my opinion. Right. We don't really see triple tail a whole lot older than uh, five to seven years old. I think that's really the max end. And so if you're taking four year old fish, it's really just one year of impact on that fish versus if you were to take say a 24 inch fish, there's potentially three, four years of impact on that fish. Um, and so that's, the kind of thing where you take that information and try to come up with some sort of system for determining what the impact of what if we moved it up one inch, one inch, one inch, one inch, or a slot. Uh, what about this range, this range, this range? Um, mm-hmm. Trying to figure out exactly what the impact is and not just putting a, a slot on it because you want to put a slot on it, but putting it on it because it would have the greatest impact on the fishery and that very well may not be the case with triple tail as a whole Um, now it may be fairly important if you were to say take a slot and put it on the species for a very short selective period of time Um, if a certain area call it um, mississippi has a spawning season that is at its absolute peak in august september or september october during that two month time frame you could put a different regulation on them in order to protect that larger fish that is able to have the greatest impact during that period of time and is going to be stacked up on structure where they would be most accessible to anglers and subject to the uh complete removal of that little localized area what what i would say to that though is whenever you start putting seasons on fish you start to see imbalances and I, I know that that might sound crazy that we need to take, but I, I think that, you know, this, this, is some, this is an idea that we would have no science on. But it's my idea that the fishery has a way of communicating with itself and knowing how to replenish within 
each year so that the prolification of the species can continue. You see this with pogey fishing. Um, obviously a very greatly managed fishery because they've been harvesting pogies for a long time and they're still able to do so. Now, how that happens, I have no idea, you know, and, but I do know that whenever I've seen, um, seasons put on fish, you start to see imbalances. And I think that whenever you start talking about seasons on fish, I think that there's more that the fish knows how to evolve with what's being taken out than we give them credit for. And so, it's hard to put science to that. I understand that. So but. I think one thing that we've observed with triple tail is that given <laughs> local areas can have good years and they can have bad years. And it can be very, very different from a neighboring localized area. So let's take this past year, for example, Mobile and Mississippi Sound. I think it was general consensus that it was not the best fishing year for triple tail for call it. 23 to 28 inch fish that would normally be pretty prevalent in those areas. Venice had what we could observe as one of the best fishing years that they've had in a while. It is possible that a lot of the fish that could have and would have normally transited into the Mississippi Sound and Mobile Bay may have gotten cut off and stayed in Venice. Mm -hmm. Um, And this year could be entirely different depending on the freshwater signature with the river being lower those fish could very well put keep pushing up into the Mississippi Sound and into Mobile Bay, and those areas have a much better year this year than before. But what those fish are really doing, they're not saying uh, which anglers they want to be subject to. They're trying to find the most beneficial area for getting the best spawning possible. So if they're reliant on the fresh water, they're going to go to where the conditions are right or best for them to be able to spawn. Um, we see that with some other species, some are less dependent on it. Some will spawn in the same area year after year, no matter what the conditions are. I think triple tail with the way they move and how sensitive they are to environmental conditions, that they are truly trying to find what is the best area for food and for spawning, and then staying in that area as long as the temperatures will allow them to, and then moving to where they can next, find the next area, find the next area. Um, And once they find something they like, they stay there. They have no reason to leave. And I, and I also believe that the, like, just as what you just said, how they had, like, all the all the fishing pressure that comes off the coast. I mean, the coastlines are more populated around Mississippi and, um, and, and Mobile Bay. All the fishing pressure, especially after COVID, the, the amount of pressure was unprecedented from what I talked to guys about. And um, I think that the species, again, knows how to communicate with itself, and they don't go back to those areas anymore because – why would they? <laughs> sure, sure. No, I mean, it's and, definitely and, a thing that they can get hook shy. Like yeah. You, you see the, and, and you see the same thing with uh, Cobia. Um, you know, all the Cobia tournaments back in the early 2000s um, and the sheer amount of, you know, giant, giant Cobias that they were catching. And now that a lot, I talk to a lot of those fishermen and they think that the Cobia migrations have moved further offshore instead of on the beaches, even though that there's bait there on the beaches and stuff. They sure moved out just because they felt that immense amount of pressure and um i don't know i don't know how you put science to that i don't know how but it just seems that that's what the the fish are are capable of making these adjustments kobe's an interesting one that's another one where like uh you can kind of use social media to figure out when when to go (laughs) when they're when they're pushing across like yes there's fish that stick around year round and um but there's also a large push of fish that come from east to west and 
one thing I've looked at just kind of anecdotally myself, kind of trying to cue in on it, where those water temperature boundaries are, mm-hmm. how that impacts. Like if there's a cold pocket up in the Northeast Florida corner, how that adjusts where the fish fish push versus if it gets warm really fast and it's warm all the way up the coastline, why wouldn't that fish stay up further north? Mm-hmm. Um, and how that could be impacted. It, it's amazing to me how temperature-oriented all of these species are. Absolutely. It is very temperature-oriented. And, like, I, I notice it, too. Um, like, right now, we're coming into uh, the summer. Um, and I was just diving this past week. And that surface level is so, so, so much warmer than the, the sub-temperature. Like, especially... Like as you know, you know, not in blue water, the thermocline seems to be less dramatic. Sure. But whenever you have that green or the brown water on top, that's really, really hot, like almost 85 to 87 degrees right now. And then underneath it'll be, I, I don't know what the temp would be, but it, it feels like a lot. It's probably not as much as what it feels like. You know, you get down there and it's like, Ooh, I don't want to be down here. It's cold. But, Too much. Yeah. But it definitely seems that, and, and you notice where like this past few days we were uh, diving and you try to go deep to look for the cobia and they wouldn't be there. And you come up into that, that warmer water and they would be there. Shaw African pompanos like way up in the water column and stuff. And that's another fish that's very interesting to me because I can remember when it seemed like African pompanos just showed up here. And um, we back back in before 2000, I don't know when we caught our first ones, but it seems like before 2010, I would talk to people that have been diving here for a long time and they said, we never had African, there's no African pompanos off of Louisiana. Well, there's a huge concentration of African pompanos off the main pass and on the west side of the river, actually. And um, maybe they just found out that they, you know, the temp's right. <laughs> They're doing everything sure. that, that, that the the cobias are doing. You no, know? I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of species that um, have been historically <laughs> thought of as it's more of a tropical fish um, and have resulted in them moving to areas that they haven't normally been observed in. Um, I think snook is an interesting one where year to year that can change and uh, how they push up the coastlines of both Texas and Florida uh, where they are and are not concentrating. That So are they moving further north? So definitely in Texas they have been shown to be moving further north that there's more of a fishery for them now um, versus like Florida is very, very dependent on seemingly the freezes, um, the freezes what, right. it, what the temperatures actually allow that species to do. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing to say that species can't change over time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could be as simple as a, a small group moving up on a warm year, finding out that the habitat is right, say yeah. for African pompano. Yeah. And like they can understand that, oh, this area is good yeah. and it gets worked into the migration pattern in some kind of way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and I agree with that. Um, you know, and uh, when people talk about climate change, I mean, there's it's really not very debatable that the earth is getting warmer. Why it's getting warmer, how that's very debatable, <laughs> but um, it is getting warmer. And while that's not good for certain things, it seems to be beneficial for pelagic species like triple tail. And it doesn't even have to be warmth. It can be rainfall. It can be other yeah. things that the these species are queuing in on that are either good for a certain area to hold that type of fish or negative for that area to hold that type of fish. Um, 
we've seen a lot of areas that um, are changing and the fish are just adapting to that. They are trying to find what feels right to that species for spawning and for feeding. So if the bait moves to an area, they're probably going to follow it. If the temperature is right here for spawning more so than here, they're going to go to the area that's right. Right. Um, And that's really what they're queuing in on. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, but um, we're, we're close to an hour and 15 minutes into this, but I, I'd like to ask you a couple more personal questions, if you don't mind. How about um, it? Where, where did you develop your passion for fishing or, or I mean, biology and all that kind of stuff? Where'd you, where'd you come from? <laughs> Man, that's a good question. So, um, born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, not coastally oriented in any kind of way. Um, but when I was uh, growing up, we visited my grandparents down in South Florida, lived in Cape Coral, and I grew up fishing the mangroves with them. Um, some of my earliest memories are fishing with them, and that's really where it got started. Um, family would ask me when I was little, five, six years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a marine biologist. Really? Yeah. The, <laughs> here you are. My only thing was I didn't want to take the notes. I wanted somebody <laughs> to take the notes for me. Um but yeah, no, so I kind of had that going and uh, through a series of events got over to Armstrong State University in Savannah, Georgia, and I was just studying biology, but got an opportunity to do an undergraduate research project, and I chose to do it on the spot orientation of red drum. So I went out and caught 200 red drum hook and line um, one summer and recorded every iteration of the spotting. The so, spot on the on the redfish. Exactly. Oh, I thought you were talking about fishing spot. No. Actually, the spot <laughs> Found of, the, of the redfish. Exactly. And so I ended up finding out that um, for that specific area in Savannah, uh, it was 66% on the nose had the traditional one spot orientation. 33% was some variety of multiple spot iterations and w- caught one fish with the no spot. So call it Ooh. half of a percent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every time I catch one with no spot, I'm like, what's missing? That's right. That's right. Um, but basically use that to kind of leapfrog and um, get myself to the Gulf Coast Research Lab uh, studying really uh, aquaculture, uh, but marine fisheries in general and got my master's from the Gulf Coast Research Lab, Southern Miss. Uh, From there, was able to uh, get a position with the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources and start working to help research and manage the fisheries for the state of Mississippi. Awesome. And how long have you been with them now? Ooh, this would make five years now. Awesome. Um, Yep. And uh, probably the coolest thing that I got out of the Gulf Coast Research Lab, so uh, there was a period of time where we were bringing in triple tail to raise for aquaculture, trying to figure out the spawning. Uh, I did that as well. Yeah, I brought them six fish. This there you past go. Year. Yeah. Um, those fish, when you got them into a tank, they were puppy dogs. It so was cool. incredible. They were the most curious, uh, happy to see you fish. It was unbelievable. And so, yeah, I would agree. I went to uh, the re- uh, went and saw Angelos whenever after I brought him those fish. And then he showed me fish that they had cultured there. And um, I thought it was so interesting because they had redfish, they had speckled trout, and then they have these tanks with there. And you go over into the to the speckled trout ones or the redfish, and they just kind of swim around the thing. They don't really care that you're there. Right. You're probably more in their way than anything. But then you walk up to the 
the <laughs> the the triple tail one and it's like they want they just want to be by you it yes. is really cool and they re- they react very similar in the water like whenever you see them on structure like if you go down they come swim right up to you sure you know and people say oh they're they're easy to shoot and everything like that but it's a lot of times you're getting into fresh water i mean it's murky and it's not you know it's Sometimes it's easy, but so is fishing. You know, sometimes sure. it's easy. Sometimes they're there. Sometimes they yeah, ain't you're even looking all day. You know, so it's I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, that's one of the coolest things I observed whenever they were in there was just the, the the difference in how they react is just unbelievable. No, absolutely. I mean, for so many reasons, this species is my favorite. But <laughs> it is just a all around cool species. It doesn't act like other fish. You don't fish for it the way you fish for other fish. It is its own unique experience. It really is, man. And um they think that it's gonna be a really good aquaculture fish, right? Oh absolutely. Um with really development of the spawning aspect, the growth is there. I mean with how how fast they grow, they are absolutely a good candidate for commercial production. It is a great tasting fish. Uh, people love eating it. They've got a good name association with it. And if you're able to get that fish produced to call it 16 to 18 inches within a year or two, you're going to be doing pretty well. That's awesome, man. I can't wait to see um, what happens to that. I know. So uh, the people that I deal with my boat with uh, Joey Furlan, Furlan's Marine. Absolutely. He's getting really heavy into the uh, oyster aquaculture and uh, he's got a lot of interest in uh, culturing triple tail. So it's kind of cool how I'm already connected with him, but I want to be like as involved in that in that sort of thing as I can because I think it's a uh, it's such a cool idea. You know, like if we can, you know, I've, I've always had say that we need to localize our natural resource. We need to instead of shipping all this fish all throughout the country, we need to make it so that people want to come here to enjoy that, and then the stuff that we ship other places should be cultured. You know, and we should commercial fit so that we can have the natural resource for our coastlines. And, sure. um, you know, that's just an idea of how, how it should be, but who knows? Things will probably never change. But, um, I don't know, man. This was a, a great podcast. And, uh, is there anything else you want to? No, man. I appreciate you having me on and, uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. And, yeah. Yeah. What in the future, you plan on to keep doing the, the triple tail stuff and research and everything? Or? Recreationally, absolutely. <laughs> um, but in general, um, I think we've got eight tags left to be put out this year. <clears throat> and we're still working on exactly how we want to disperse those. It'll definitely be in the fall. Um, we've partnered with other states, obviously, Florida. Uh, we did get some Alabama tags out in 2021, um, Mississippi and Louisiana. We've got some talks with Texas to uh, maybe get some of the tags over there and get a better understanding of kind of that, that fall migration just to really get some concrete data there. But um, once we get those eight tags out, I anticipate that we will be really working on the publication and trying to get as much of the data side of the fish as we can possibly get wrapped up awesome man well i i appreciate appreciate it so much eric and um if there's anything i can do to help you guys i'd love to and um i appreciate all the good work that you've done thus far yeah man we'll keep you in mind we appreciate it awesome man have a good one bye guys